I think what's what's become clearer, certainly in the last few years, as competition in the game industry has really stepped up, is that there's a fundamental difference between a great game and a great game business. You know, you could be super lucky, you your game is an instant hit, it's resonating with users, but for when that's not the case, uh, or even when you just want to take your game growth to the next level, that's where we come in. So we've developed a really incredible platform that's designed to make you as powerful and as capable as possible in growing your game, whether that's growing your game revenue or growing your user base. That was Melissa Zella, VP of Marketing at IronSource. Hey, and welcome to the Deconstructor of Fun podcast. I'm your host, Mishka Katkov, and my guest today is Vulcan Edits. This is going to be a fun episode. We're going to talk about launching a core game on mobile in 2022. So, of course, first of all, we're going to start out talking about Vulcan and his history in gaming. Uh, he's worked at Gree, Machine Zone, and currently at He's a chief revenue officer at Super Evil Megacorp. And as we're talking about Super Evil Megacorp, we're also talking about Catalyst Black, which is their latest game. And we're going to talk about their first game, Vainglory. You know, what worked with that and what didn't and what did Catalyst Black improve on? But the main topic of this discussion is, of course, launching a game on mobile, uh, especially a core game, because Catalyst Black, just like Vainglory is a very high production value core game. And with Vulcan, we're going to talk about how they're approaching the launch, what kind of metrics they're looking in the soft launch, what geos they have chosen and why, how are they improving their marketability, what kind of wrench did the, uh, the whole privacy change throw in into their soft launch. We're going to talk about the content cadence, how Super Evil Megacorp is preparing for that. And of course, we're going to talk about their fully distributed organization, which they already had before COVID. Uh, anyways, I think this is a, no, I know, this is a super interesting podcast. I truly enjoyed actually uh, recording this. Vulcan is a, is a very interesting cat. So I'll know, I know that you will enjoy listening to this one as well. And as always, appreciating all the feedback. So keep saying it, sending it our way. And without further ado, shout out to our fantastic sponsors, Facebook, Iron Source, and Apps Flyer. Enjoy the episode, guys. We all know it. Mobile marketing is going through a paradigm shift. With the industry moving towards a more aggregate way of measuring marketing efforts, marketers' ability to measure and understand the impact of their marketing investments is further curtailed. AppsFlyer, though, is not sitting on the sidelines. The company has set a goal to help their customers and the entire mobile ecosystem to successfully navigate the new era of mobile marketing. And that's where AppsFlyer's latest product, the incrementality solution, comes to play. It's a product that truly empowers marketers to gain a better understanding of the real value that their marketing efforts hold. AppsFlyer's incrementality solution is built around remarketing. It simplifies the process of designing, executing, and analyzing incremental lift tests at scale, which previously was something that only the biggest players on the market were able to do. With, with incrementality, marketers can focus on the end goal of their test without actually having to worry about the heavy lifting that comes with it. To learn more about incrementality and to read the success stories from publishers like Kabam, I suggest you head out to appsflyers.com. This episode is brought to you by Facebook Gaming. 
Facebook Gaming is building the world's gaming community by helping game makers, developers, and publishers to build, grow, and monetize their games. They do, do this by providing research-based insights, in-depth case studies, as well as wide variety of educational materials. A recent example of this is Games Marketing Insights for 2021, a report that has just been released and is available to download for free right now. Of course, Facebook Gaming also helps developers and publishers of all sizes to deploy powerful UA and monetization strategies through a range of innovative solutions designed for games marketers in every corner of the industry. Go to fb.gg forward slash DOF for in-depth educational materials, including playbooks, webinars, blogs, and reports, as well as great video content. Vulcan Edits, welcome to the uh, podcast. Thanks, Mishka, for having me. I'm really, really excited. I'm really looking forward to be here. Um, before you say anything, I've been actually a big fan of you, the Deconstructor Fun Fun, over years. And it's actually a pleasure to be finally, like, you know, be really part of this. Like, I'm, I'm really, really happy to be here. Ah, uh, come on. Let's keep it, not, let's not keep it formal. This was, we had a, we had a panel discussion a few weeks ago. This, that was on the, on the level up. And I was yeah. like, hmm, Vulcan is an interesting cat. We need to get on on a podcast and really <laughs> talk about talk about this. So we made it happen. It's about 6 a.m. here in, in Helsinki, and it's about close to 7 p.m. in San Francisco. Am I correct? No, it's actually 9 p.m. 9 p.m.? Oh, my God. So we are doing this at a time that is bad for both of us, correct? That's why it's going to be so fun. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So for people who don't know you, Vulcan, you are a chief revenue officer at Super Evil Megacorp. Before that, you worked at Machine Zone, yeah. another Super Evil Megacorp. And, uh, <laughs> in a very different way, yes. We can um, talk about that briefly, you know. Yeah, but I we know will, we will. And then currently part of AppLovin, another Super Evil Megacorp. And before Machine Zone, you were at GRI, am I correct? That's correct. I was at GRI International. I joined them actually through the Fonzio acquisition, which is a funny story. You oh, know? This, this podcast is all about funny stories. <laughs> yeah, maybe start there. I mean, my background is in data and I tried a few different things. I basically followed my wife. You know, she is a computer science machine learning PhD in, from Carnegie Mellon. So I basically told her like, wherever you go, I'll just follow you, you know, and I'll find my passion. That's really how my journey started. And my background is in, in data. I also have a, uh, which is irrelevant what I do today, with irrelevant what I do today, but I also have a PhD in computational chemistry and machine learning. So my background is very close to data science. Nice. But I didn't really want to do that. I figured like there are only a handful of people, academics who really care about my work. I'm like, hmm, I think I want to be more impactful in the world and I don't want to be 70 years old to, to see the fruition of my labor, you know? So I... Uh, First joined a boutique management consulting company right after I finished PhD in the Bay Area, got headhunted by LinkedIn, worked there for a year. And by the time my like passion for like entrepreneurship, like started kicking startups, you know, everybody's treated like rockstar in the Bay Area, <laughs> starting a startup, like, right. And it's, it's like a very interesting, like personal journey and transformation. So I was looking for ways to express my problem solving skills and creativity with what I know best. And, and I was always like a big, big gamer in my early lives. You know, my dad made this mistake to bring the Commodore 64 
and my first bike bike to the house at the same day. <laughs> and I'm proud to say that, you know, and I was five years old and I'm proud to say it took me 25 years to learn how to ride a bike. Like I'm not even kidding, <laughs> you know? So you, you guys be careful. Like when you, when you uh, make such decisions, you know, be, be mindful when you give like gifts to your, your, your uh, kids. Uh, taking a step back. So I've been always like a passionate gamer. I, you know, grew up playing tons of tons of different games and that, that's something that I really cared about. And, and I, I figured like, you know, how can I like be at the interjunction of like the startup world and the, uh, games and data. So I, that's how I like, uh, found and joined Fanzio. And for those who don't remember Fanzio, yeah, crime city, modern war, King Dimash, the same game done five times. But they eventually like did like very interesting stuff. And I joined the company at the, you know, the um, wrong time, I will say, but it was the right bet because after I joined, like in 15 days, we got acquired. That's like when I saw the Rick Thompson, he was like a, you know, a legend in, uh, from Signia Ventures. The first time that I met Rick Thompson, he was like drinking champagne. I'm like, okay, this is interesting. I think this is how things like work. Anyhow, so I, jo I joined Fanzio. We got acquired in 15 days, obviously no financial upside, but I want to go through the M&A, see how things work at like a more, a bigger company, jo joined Green International on the data science and analytics side. You know, my gaming journey like officially took off then. So I was in IC there initially, like start managing people. I grew my team from two people to 15 people, took over at monetization, doubled the revenue, eventually was offered a role in on the product side as the studio head, as a business owner. So I actually joined the strategy studio, Forex Studio, War of Nations, and ran the studio for about like a, like a year. Mm -hmm. And Proud to say that my team uh, were able to push the gaming. Actually, back this is back in 2015. We were pushing into top 10 on on iOS and US, as well as like you know top 20 on on Android globally. So we were feeling very very happy. And by the time I left, roughly speaking, half of the company was in my team, which was like you know a very very amazing thing for me to you know to 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 go through. And I'm really really grateful for all those people who gave me the opportunity. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, by the time I left, my team was like about seven to five people. But going back to that my route, like the you know Bay Area entrepreneurship, I decided screw it, I'm gonna do my own thing, right? So that's why I left actually Green International. <laughs> I mean that turned out to be an actual okay call if you look at what happened to Green International, and I left the company to build my publishing house that was going to be a bridge between Turkey and US. There's lots of opportunities. I figured the insane talent in Turkey, like how they are really close to like the. Western games and how they built like the, they have the, the mentality, but lacking like the know-how. Like now looking back today, right? This is 2021. Like you are seeing like the big exits, like Rolex games, you know, the Epic games, like people that were only like a two people startup back then. Now they are dominating like top grossing charts in, 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 Tur in US and all over the world in the hyper casual space. So lots of interesting talent in Turkey. So I wanted to like leverage that, but you know, life happened and my, we were expecting our first baby. I need financial stability and decided to join Machine Zone because I wanted to always surround myself with like the smartest, awesome people that I will, you know, I can potentially meet. And I was working with Deepak. He's a legend, the chief revenue officer at Machine Zone, also chief revenue officer at App Level right now. The, the dude is a legend. Like he's probably like one of the best performance marketers in the world, even though he doesn't give too many talks out there, you know, like, but when you, when you think about like what you can learn at Machines and the performance marketing and how things work, how scrappy they were to build a game with like the highest LTV and trying to make sure that everyone who is on mobile sees their ads and mm -hmm. at a reasonable cost and, you know, and scale the game through like 
really, really, really hardcore, like, you know, sweats and, and hard work. I think I've learned uh, quite a bit at Mission Zone from live ops to, you know, the marketing, performance marketing, analytics, data science, machine learning, like, you know, work with both product and marketing team. So it was like a super, super fun journey for me. And then I eventually again left, uh, not because like Mission Zone was like in, in trouble, but again, that entrepreneurship thing, you know, like I want to do my own thing. So <laughs> I left in 2018, this time to build games for a voice first devices. Like, can I, what would it take for me to build like a, to, to, you know, have a unique like experience in a very different platform, not really trying to copy what's happening on, on PC, on console, on, on mobile. What like experiences will be unique? Can I be one of the pioneers and frontrunners in that like voice first like space? So that, that space has been super intriguing to me. And I decided to like start this company with my CTO back in 2018. And we actually, you know, did some really good job, built a product prototype. I unfortunately lost my, lost my uh, CTO to Salesforce. You know, it's really hard to keep engineers at uh, happy in, in Bay Area, as you guys may have heard about like the insane payouts, right? Insane salaries. And the interesting thing is like, this is now where we're gonna come to the Super Evil story. Chris was going to be our current CEO at Super Evil, a legend, Christian Segers Trail. For those who don't know, he's the co-founder of Blue Mobile. He is the co-founder of Playfish, which got sold to EA for, I think, I guess for 400 million, if I'm not mistaken. He is the seed investor in Supercell in many companies. I mean, you know, the guy is a legend in the industry and it's, Initial I figured, yeah, I figured either if, if there's a chance for me to learn from someone, I would love to have this guy on my board. Like, and he was going to my lead investor. And indeed we were actually working in the super evil megacorp layer back in San Mateo, you know, putting like all nighters with my co-founder, building our like game and they were incubating us. And my, when my CTO left, Chris saw how vulnerable I was. He offered like a, like a part-time role to help them out. And I guess this is like his evil approach to find like, you know, finding, you know, interesting people and joined his company. And what happened was I actually, you know, realized that the, the, the how passionate the leadership team was with their craftsmen from art to product to engineering, always focusing on like the best player experience possible. Like, and they always doing the right thing for, 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 for the players. And given my machine zone and re and pharmacy experience, that was unique to me. I'm like, wow, this guy's really care about making games that people want to play. You know, that was very, very, very unique. And my thought was, what if I can combine what I know about data, performance marketing, live ops, monetization with what these guys are amazing at, which is like building amazing triple A, you know, triple A quality games. Can we actually build the next generation of video games together? And that's really how my journey started like at Super Evil, you know, and looking back, I mean, and I told this Chris, this Chris the other day, not, not, not like the, you know, brag about it. But I feel like I'm super grateful for being given the opportunity because this is probably like the by far the best job that I've ever had. I'm really, really enjoying my time at Super Evil. But yeah, it's a very, very long answer. But I hope <laughs> some people, some listeners who are in different parts of their journey trying different things like, should I go stay in the data analysis? Should I stay in data science? Should I try marketing? Should I try live house position? There are many, many different paths that you can take in the game development. And it's more important to find what your uh, skill sets are, what you are passionate about, and what are your intellectually 
what makes you tick, you know? So I've been just very, very grateful and lucky so far to write this like incredible journey with amazing leaders and people. But yeah, it's a very, very long answer. I think, I think that, was a, that was a perfect answer. I'm, we can just stop the podcast on that and, <laughs> and that's an episode. No, no, for, for real. Uh, I, I know Super Evil Megacorp quite well. My wife worked at the company twice, meaning like the, she started working when they were in, a, in, a, in an office that used to be their previous office that is currently your office. So not the layer, but the first layer. And uh, I think she worked, she just tried out there for a week or so. That was before Christian, when Christian was still an, an investor. Then she left. She's like, yeah, this is this company's in too early stage. And then she returned a couple of months later when, when Christian had joined, because I know Christian as well. And he's very persuasive. And he said, hey, come back and let's 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 ride this train. And and, and she was she was there for I think three and a half years or so. So from the point even before they launched first game, Bangalore, to the point where the game had been launched, they tried to scale it and it was clear that it wasn't going you know, going to be big. So to, from the launch to decline, let's put it this way. Yeah, and then I've, I've played the other uh, first demos and I played the other uh, mid game and I played the late. <laughs> so I've played, I've played in, in many phases and, and you're absolutely right. The, the level of craftsmanship, the, the sort of a triple A approach is quite unique to the company in good and in bad ways. So from my experience in previously, the way that you describe AAA is correct. They are very user focused, player focused very very high level of technical capabilities very high level of art capabilities very high level of, of storytelling community everything from front to back end to to all those elements also really bad at monetization no understanding of user acquisition disregard to what works on mobile no interest in looking at benchmarks those are also elements of a triple a company and i think those were in my humble opinion why the first game failed. So I want to talk about from Vainglory to your next game that is currently in soft launch, Catalyst Black. What's different? What has worked with Vainglory and what didn't? And what is Catalyst Black improving on? You weren't making Vainglory, so it's very... <laughs> like you can be I very... I've been on Vainglory for a year. Yeah. <laughs> and we transitioned to the to like this like third-party publisher. Yeah, Rogue. Unfortunately... Yeah, problematic in itself turned out to be for them and for us. And we still love the Vainglory community and what the game stands for. There are many, many, many learnings that Vainglory like brought to us. Maybe let me rephrase what you said in a very politically correct way. <laughs> <laughs> I think metrics-wise, Vainglory's success was mixed. On one hand, the title had over about 50 million downloads with practically no spend on performance marketing. And the company actually accomplished many firsts from, to your point, community-driven, like, you know, marketing strategy to esports, developing deep partnerships with, like, platforms and hardware companies. I mean, if you think about it, there are not too many gaming companies out there who took a stage at an Apple event to show off capabilities of a brand new iPhone device. I think that's something to be really proud of. And people but just guess, remember, people remember Tommy's scarf. Let's Tommy's scarf is that. <laughs> Uh, I mean, for those who have noticed, there's a scarf on the iOS, like default emojis. We believe, I don't think it's proven, but we believe that's Tommy's scarf. That's it. Like, I, I guess like now coming back to what you said, I think it's on the other hand, it didn't break out like the billion dollar title we really wanted to be, right? And I mean, the learnings are like, we need to figure out like, you know, we needed to figure out like, how can we make our engine better? What needs to be, how can we like design the, the next game from the ground up? How to achieve better monetization progression for future titles, right? So 
in terms of like the mistakes, I think I will categorize them in four categories. Like, you know, the first mistake for the Vanguard team is like, you just hit the right to the, like you, the, to the point, you know, they didn't hire the right monetization system design talent on day one they, when they were thinking about Vanguard, right? It's basically, the thought was like, we are building League of Legends for mobile. If we reach that BAU, that, you know, 100 million MAU or whatever that number is, right? You can get away with like a fraction of cents of like, you know, with monetization. But the, the reality is like the, the devices were not ready. The West was not ready to actually transition from PC to mobile. So the market size was actually relatively small just to play pure mobile back in 2014, 15. Right? I, I know. So let me let me take a step back to those days because I was there talking to you yeah, there to talking, <laughs> talking to the guy. So. I played back then. There was uh, there were several mobas. First mobas that were coming in were really really simplified. Not really a moba, almost like a, like a one central battle where where you duke it out. It just bad games. And everybody from Zynga to to you know who were making one of those like Solstice Arenas and whatnot. There was one sort of like a first moba coming in in the West that was called Fates Forever. And despite the you know it looked nice, but it had all kinds of problems in soft launch. But I was playing it a lot. And, and then Vainglory was the second one. Like those were the uh, the two big ones. Now, Fates Forever failed, but that's an interesting failure because it <laughs> it led to Discord. So that company is <laughs> currently Discord. So that is that's their thing, though, right? For people who know, the yeah. founders of the the Discord are also the founders of OpenFane, and their CEO is is known as want to build build his own games, and you know. He always ends up like finding an amazing tool that people will massively adopt and use. So that's like how OpenFane is a gaming company become like a platform on top of the iOS and, and you know Android. If people remember back then, 2011, 12, I actually met a lot of like souls who are now at Discord back in my great days because we overlapped with the, with the OpenFane OpenFane guys. You're absolutely right about that. <laughs> and when you said you when you said Vainglory had mixed success, I would say. Fates Forever had mixed success. Failed as a game, succeeded as a platform. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's called a mixed success. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. You know, the definition could be a little... But let me talk about the monetization part. So, and then the and the example. So I remember having this discussion. And one a few of the things that I was saying, like my humble feedback as a player of, of early MOBAs on, on iPads, actually. I said joystick controls. That was already everywhere. And of course, I was laughed out by not understanding how MOBAs really work, how important it is to last hit and all those precision. That's why uh, Vainglory had from the beginning, the uh, the two finger control system, which was ridiculous. Like it was any user researcher would have said, this is ridiculous. But then if you're purely looking at League of Legends and trying to copy that and then pushing forward with the, uh, with the sort of elements that actually are not working on mobile, especially as the screen sizes were getting smaller, iPad market was steadily declining and it, it just wasn't, wasn't a, a point to, to do that. But nevertheless, that was pushed through. The second part, I'll just give an example. When the first, when the game was, was gearing up to monetize and the first prices were put in, the, pro the prices were extremely low for characters. I think they were going for like a $2 a character. And I said, hey, this is dangerous because you're setting a ceiling like you're, you're setting an expectation. When you look at even Heroes of the Storm came out around the same times and their first characters were 10 bucks. Why? Because it sets a certain type of a 
price structure, like a character is 10 bucks. We can run sales. I asked them, how are you going to run a sale from a $2 character? How long does it take you to make one? Like there's a whole pipeline to make. Those characters are amazing. They have oh, a story. Yeah. We, we learned quite a bit. Exactly. So, so these were, these were like the early feedback that were met with like, dude, you don't know what you're talking about. And that's what I mean by a AAA approach or like, yeah. Hey dude, you, you think, you know, games because you've been doing mobile games, you've been doing Facebook games. What you've been doing is, is like, you know, nice, you know, cool story, bro. Let us show you what a real game is. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my experience from super throughout, throughout the I'm glad you know so much about Wingler and the, the original team. And the way that I will, again, paraphrase that is like, I think the team got arrogant around vanity metrics versus the metrics that really matter, right? I mean, that's basically what it is. That's a good, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. And the other thing is like the technology wasn't really mature enough for a rapid free-to-play live ops iteration. You know, they figured like, hey, you know, if we make this game, people will come and you're going to be like a billion dollar company. And that's not like a systematically right way to build like a free-to-play like, you know, a product. But I guess like maybe we can just like jump into what are we learned from this and what are we doing yeah. right right yeah. now with Catalyst Black. I think it's fair to say that the, you know, with that chip on our shoulder, you know, almost making it from the DAU perspective, but then failing. And, you know, the Bangalore actually failed once like stronger, you know, competitors came into the Southeast Asia market, like Mobile Legends, Arena of Failure, it, the game failed. And even those guys cannot survive in the West because like, the, roughly speaking, the LTV is around like $2 in US for those type of games. For Wengler, it was even like a little bit worse, I would imagine. I cannot, you know, tell the exact number, but, you know, the challenge is if your, C if your LTV is $2 and you could only basically script the bottom, you cannot scale. You, for, for anything to go, you know, be successful in the U.S. or in the West, uh, ideally speaking, your LTV needs to be above $4 or $5. And even back then, maybe it was $3, but with $2, you cannot survive. So what do you do? You need to rely on other, all the other tactics, right? And that's how, if you look at like why Arena of Failure decided to shut down their like West operations, that's the reason why. Like they just cannot scale and they cannot do what they do in China or in, in Southeast Asia, where they build like a very strong local presence with like the more traditional marketing, like the local, you know, the esports and the community events and like the billboards and like the using like local stars and doing lots of lots of lots of different activities so wherever you look like you see arena of failure mm -hmm. and obviously they own the platform tencent q where they got like an overnight 300 million downloads at the two dollar ltv you know then you are set for success like yeah. you have to have some competitive advantage they have no competitive advantage with a only skin-based economy to your point which has like a very strong span cap it's really very difficult to build like a scale, a game like, like League of Legends on mobile. I'm glad that Wildrift is trying to do that. Obviously they have a massive, massive following. So some people are gonna try it out and you know, they will have strong engagement, but I will imagine if they wanna try out performance marketing after a while, they will also suffer. Like just the core game economy as a free to play game, it's actually relatively difficult to scale a game with that like, only skin-based, like cosmetic-only uh, economy. And Wengler team tried to fix it in other ways. They tried to bring in like modes where there's power delta and differences like, you know, then you create like this like segmentation in your player base. Some people are really into like the pay-to-win type of like 
situation. Some of them are like purists. They don't want to touch that like power deltas in the game, you know, like, so we don't want to, we, want, we didn't want to go down in that route. So what we are doing is maybe, let me wear the deconstructor of fun hat as I'm answering this question. I'm sure players want to hear something else, how beautiful this game is and all those things, you know, but for the listeners, I think what they want to hear is like, how different is they, this game is, how we are fixing this like problem, right? And there are basically, when we looked at all those problems, we came up with like four pillars that will help us to build the next generation of like games. And Catalyst Black is the first one. So the first one is there's a huge trend where people are, you know, the developers are building natively cross-platform games, right? That's like even we have seen with Genshin Impact, you're going to see it. PUBG is doing the same, Fortnite, we are going to see more and more and more of this like native cross-platform like game building. So we do have that capability. One thing that we are good at, I think, is the top-down action strategy titles, mobile you know, like getting those kind of like shaving of milliseconds from the gameplay and keeping it tight. That's those visceral combat moments. Those are really difficult to replicate if you are using Unity. Like, you know, having having your own engine really pays off as you are really optimizing these like awesome combat moments, right? Mm -hmm. The second pillar, which is something that you'll be interested in, is like the building a very, very deep loot economy with thousands of hours of like long-term progress, which is different than how MOBAs work, right? So what we did was like basically the verbs for this new game is shooter and looter and you upgrade your stuff, right? And what that means is like, instead of like progressing and building in match your like capabilities as a player, what, what happens is like, now you can actually build this your custom loadout out, outside of the game. And there's like multiple power progression and accesses, right? Very similar to what you will see from like a traditional RPG game, you know, Marvel Strike Force or AFK Arena type of like the loot structure where it's not only your hero, but it's also your gear. And it's like your, like your mods and signature items and all those kind of like different power accesses and deltas, right? And there's like all of our research show, like players really, really do care about their progression and productivity, right? Like even if they are model players, action shooters, like they care about that sense of progression as they play the game. So we took all those elements out of like the MOBA and built this like beautiful, very deep, like rich, like progression model where like, you know, as you are building your loadout, like in, 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 in Catalyst Black, you, you're going to be able to not only level up your weapon, you know, obviously it's going to be increasing power, but you can also do the star upgrades uh, pretty much like the RPG styles where the different stars will give very unique or different skills or abilities to that weapon. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, there's also the banner synergies. Maybe, you know, if you collect two vanguards and two snipers, you can play like 20% sniper and 80% jungler, like the, for mobile guys who are looking for that unique combination. As they're like customizing and bringing their loadout together, going into the battle, they will have this like very like stylized or, you know, the, the, the play style that they're looking for, but the progression happens out of the game. And then that we have also like the mods, you can actually, you know, add gems or mods to your weapon, again, giving like very unique abilities. And those things also have rarities. And in the future, maybe you're going to be able to craft those together. I and mean, we already have a very simple crafting system, but imagine in Diablo, you collect all this craft and you go and like make a specific god roll like weapon for yourself crafted and there's this certain side type of like satisfaction so there are very strong elements from the afk arena or the rpg world like how you progress in this game and it's going to be very different in terms of like the loot economy and how it actually works 
just to give you an example, I will say if the spend cap of like Vanguard's skin-based economy is, you know, thousand dollars over a year, one if one choose to like just gets everything and max out all the weapons, I would easily see somebody like spending like tens of thousands of dollars easily in this game if they want to. Again, the it's still like a skill-based PvP game. It's still super well balanced. Like it's very fair to uh, play and fair to win. And then we can talk about like how we tackle some of those design questions. But the loot economy is super super deep. And even from like the very very early uh, testing phases, like in six eight months ago, our day seven ARPI was already five x of Vainglory, and we had nothing in the game. Like maybe a few weapons you know, et cetera. But we know that this is like, we were actually in the right path. Hopefully that helps to alleviate some of your monetization questions and the shop eco economy, shop, you know, monetization, the, all those things are also um, heavily like influenced again by the RPGs, like how they operate, like the daily, the, you know, offers, how they like create like the over the air driven, like offers the personalization, giving people what they need when they want, you know, and all those things, like we are learning quite a bit actually from that genre in 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 in, in this like next game. So to summarize, what you're keeping from Vainglory is the engine, of course, the uh, the evil engine, and you are keeping the uh, the focus on the great core gameplay, which Vainglory had. Like the moment to moment gameplay was was very very solid, and the uh, the execution of a MOBA, despite the, uh, the the poor controls in the beginning, but as soon as they moved towards the joystick and so forth, became better. What you're improving on is increasing spending depth and adding progression vectors that allow players, even those who are not the most skill driven, they still have something to, to strive for and they still think that they, they can get better by just acquiring better items. So that increases both retention, but also increases monetization as, as players believe that with better gear, they will be able to succeed better in the game. That's right. And I think going back to your, the awesome deconstructor of fun article that I read like a couple of months back, you know, what's, who's going to win in the action shooter genre. That's basically, you know, if you think about midcore, uh, according to your definition, there are three like big, big genres, right? There are the shooters, there are the RPGs and there are the strategy titles, right? So mobile is classified under strategy in your, in your, in, in your classification. I think we will be mainly sitting under the shooter but we have very strong influence both from the RPG like as well as like also from the like the strategy side from because of like our deep roots in, in mobile and building like mobile like experiences. Mm -hmm. So that's why we feel like hopefully we will be the first one to break through as a, like a new, you know, blue spot in that red ocean, as you guys yeah. call it. Right. <laughs> and and like define what we call this like battleground shooter as a, like a new category under action shooter. How do you, how do you, so when, when you're describing the game and when I watch the video, it's close to Brawl Stars. It's close to, you know, I, I would like, of course, Brawl Stars being the ultra casual version, both in looks and the uh, session length and the gameplay and everything is like, how do you compare yourself to a game like Brawl Stars? I think that, I think that's a fair question. The, in terms of like the tactical depth strategy loadout and the unique combinations for those people who are like a higher skill cap, higher like uh, opportunity to customize, have more intense battles as well as like opportunity to, you know, participate in battle modes where it's not only like three versus three, but it's like up to like 20 versus 20. Like it's when we are talking about it, like if you ask our CPO, he will say, this game is destined for masses, right? Or destined for mobile, right? So there are very strong elements of like this like epic battleground shooter 
and the feeling when you play the game, even though it's action shooter in its like, you know, in its core, the gameplay feels very different. Like the, how you like drop in, drop out in different sessions. Like you can easily drop in, drop out in this game. It, it doesn't suffer from what mobile suffers. Mobile suffers, you know, if somebody goes AFK in mobiles, you know, the game's like, uh, screw it. Like you don't want to play that much anymore. Like there's so much anger, hatred built in, in mobile by just definition, right? So we made the, the, the core game more casual. It's not as casual as Brawl Stars, you know, the, it's not top down, but there's Brawl Stars is lacking the, the loot economy that they have heroes. And, you know, I'm sure everybody like in Deconstructor Fun or like who's looking in the Brawl Stars, they see the opportunity like, why did, why didn't they like further monetize? There are so many opportunities to monetize further. Like why are they missing out? Right. And for the type of game that they wanted to build, I think their uh, design decisions are consistent. But what we have is, I will say, both from the skill perspective, as well as like from the, the economy perspective, we are offering a much more like depth to the game, like breadth and depth, like, and that's going to feel very unique to be able to have this like very interesting, like gameplay moments, economy, you know, progression moments that people are going to build. I will say this is maybe why one way that I talk about is like, maybe this is like a uh, brawl stars for more core players. That's like how I will think about that. Got it. And I, I buy that positioning. I, I'm always surprised how well brawl stars ha has succeeded, not in the sense that it's not a great execution. And it wasn't a game that, you know, I, I played it from the day one, got super hooked, but I always suffered from the point of there's no progression in this game. Like they, the characters become quickly obsolete. They're extremely one dimensional in my opinion. The, the gameplay is, is, it's fun when you're playing with a friend in the same room, but it's still extremely casual. It's not strategic at all. Of course, I'm a totally wrong segment for, for the game. It probably skews extremely, not extremely, I'm not that old, much younger <laughs> than, than, than what I am. And I've actually seen, like, you know, if we go to a friend's house and whatnot, their kids have drawn pictures of the Brawl Stars characters. So definitely a game that skews much younger, but I'm still amazed that it's so big, like it crossed 1 billion. And I almost have to point out that that is Supercell's publishing power more than more than uh, anything, because the team is quite small. The amount of content is quite small. The economy is quite shallow. The uh, the content, you know, the, the amount of content that they add to the game is quite slow compared to the competitors. So there's, on the product side, I'm just looking like, what is happening here? Because I don't see anything that would blow my hair off, you know? But then on the publishing side, when you look at the animations, when you look at the, the, what they do with the community, when you look at, you know, all those elements outside the game and, and how well they scale in different countries when they launch, that is where they truly shine. So in my opinion, I would give it like a triple A to, to publishing and maybe a B plus for the, for the product itself, uh, just, on like not on the surface but you know behind like not and not in the back end but in the middle and the content side i wouldn't say it's like a it's like a benchmark and that leads me to asking the question how what like when i look at the competition in these action shooters a lot of games came out and a lot of them failed because they couldn't scale to the the numbers the brawl stars was able to scale where as you as we might presume the ltv is quite low so they need a significant DAU to have 
that that you know that that growth and and also they do a lot of events and a lot of, a lot of different elements that they are able to grow and and make the game bigger with with mass audience so how are you approaching this soft launch for catalyst back black like what are the metrics that you're looking at what geos have you chosen and why and how are you improving the marketability also with att how are you approaching this all right let me try to tackle this. So one thing that I've been very proud at is like, as I was sharing before, we are moving as a studio from first design to data-driven first you know, design like philosophy. And that cultural shift has been happening during the past year and a half of like the development of Catalyst Black. So the first thing that we did was like a secret alpha launch to test our marketability back in April, 2020 actually under the name Maskborn and we launched the game, it was barely playable. Like, you know, we, we had the, the one, one map, a few characters, they were all, they all looked the same, you know, few weapons and that's about it. Uh, but the art style was there. So we wanted to like test and like how well this game will do on the paid marketing side. What will the, the, the CPIs, IPMs would look like and to see if this game actually reads as an action shooter with strong IPMs, validating our genre and art style choices, right? Because on the surface, we want to make this game more accessible. We don't want to do another MOBA where it's very, very difficult to get users. So we want to title this to be read as a, like an action shooter with RPG-like like, uh, monetization, right? That's the dream. I mean, we haven't proven out that yet, but you know that the first step is testing to your point. So we launched a, a video campaign in Philippines and Canada for learning purposes. So guess how long it took like the community to figure out this is actually us testing things. What is your guess? Two days, two months, two weeks? Uh, <laughs> the testing phase? Yeah, like we were hiding this from the community specifically, not so that they don't under, they don't mess our metrics, you know, like, because if they figure out this is our game, people will download and they will shoot up like the, you know, the retention metrics. So that's not what we wanted. So we had to literally hide it from everyone. Yeah. So, so how long it took them to find it, right? Was that the question? Yeah, yeah. I, I would say, you know, two days. Very close, seven to two hours. Yeah. <laughs> Very close. But that said, like, that got, got, that's like our first approach. We got what we needed from Unity and from Facebook. Like we actually validated that our PMs are in line with the action shooter genre. And that gave us like a big relief. Okay, some of the big choices we made are actually paying off, let's move on. The next thing that we did was we actually built our alpha program on Discord where we like built a community for, for with Discord up to like 20,000 users. Right now, I think we have about 22,000 people on Discord. And we used this like closed alpha for two purposes. First, discovering our core audience, who they are, what they want, and you know, is, is there like a dare there for this core audience, for the core gameplay that we are building? Do they really care about it? What retention metrics we will get? Are we comparable to other top pressing like genre, you know, competitors like PUBG, Fortnite, Call of Duty, Brawl Stars, you know? How close are we? And that like alpha test like proven us that there's actually like a dare there. We know that for that top 10 person by players, they will play this game for eight hours nonstop, you know, day in, day out, like that's, like we had like world class, like day one, day seven, day third retention with the very our early alpha launch. And we transitioned that program to open like beta to still continue to get qualitative and somewhat quantitative feedback from that original cohort. You know, they help us to, you know, smash bugs, 
point out problems, they chat, they, they build the community. We still like are very grateful to that like community. But like after a while, we figured, guys, it's time to face the reality. You know, VG audience, VG community, awesome. We know them. Let's go and get like, paid users on GeoBeta and see what the metrics look like, right? Um, and we to learn about the expectations of wide audiences, we launched the GeoBeta in Q4 2020, uh, basically like last year. And we did face the harsh reality of like the meeting of like an average Joe. He needs to even figure out how to play the mobile shooter game. Like, what do I do? You know, they just sold the ad. This game is complex. What do I do? You know, and since then we have been relentlessly working on iterating the game and making ready for the mass audience consumption. As going back to your questions to the, the markets that we chose were representative of what we think our global distribution is going to look like, which is about like 30, 40% West, 30, uh, 30% Southeast Asia, 20, 30% Latin America, you know, US is probably going to be around 10%, Korea, Japan is going to be about 10%. Uh, so we chose um, representative countries from Europe, North America, Canada, which is not surprising. As well as like for technical tests, we went for Philippines as, and, and Indonesia is actually our first interesting market where we actually mixed organic and paid to get a better sense of like, this is how we want to launch this game. It's not going to be all paid or it's not going to be all organic. What if I mix those two? What do the metrics look like? And can I assess the, 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 the needs of the players? So we like chose countries according to that. And metrics wise, you know, it's the usual suspects like at company level, day one, day seven, day third, the retention, the payer conversion, repeat purchase rate, ARPU, RPPU, obviously, you know, day one, day seven, day third, ARPI are extremely important. As well as like core marketing metrics, CPIs, IPM, ROAS, blended ROAS, and all those stuff that you would really care about, right? And we also built the technology infrastructure so that we can actually segment users based on where they come from. So we really do care about like, how do the Facebook play, you know, players behave, people who are coming from Facebook versus organics, you know, they exhibit very different skills, you know, skill set, first of all, like if you're, you know, organic and who, who is known, you know, who plays this like games, giving you bot matches on your day zero, it's not a great idea. Like, you know, we, we like doing a lot of like A-B tests and they figured, you know, we don't need to bore people who are actually skillful. But for others, every Joe's, they need hand-holding, like they're suffering. Mm -hmm. And Brawl Stars offering them like seven bot matches. So how many should we offer? What do we do, right? So there's a lot of like learnings in terms of performance, segmenting players from where they come from. Granular level, we care about day zero session time, play time, tutorial completion, match over match retention rate, you know, pacing of players in terms of their match, loadout, by their engagement percentiles. So we go a whole yard, like, you know, it's important for us to know by R2, by R4, like, where are you in the game? How fast are you progressing? Are you ready to make your first, like, purchase? Like, you know, and we systematically worked our way up from, like, this January, you know, optimizing day zero, then day zero to day one, then day one to day three, then, you know, then day two to day seven. Now we are in the phase where we are trying to figure out, like, what we do with day seven to day 14 range. And eventually, as we are adding more competitive and social features, we will say, guys, this is enough. Game development never stops, but we need to launch at some point. And that's when we would like make the call. But there's a very systematic data-driven approach, if that makes sense, going through the different phases, yeah. reading the marketability, getting IPMs, getting marketing metrics, really testing out early LTVs and all those things, which is hopefully sounding like unusual or untrue to you, knowing like super evil megacorp, but we have gone through all the steps. Just calling the Apple and saying the game is coming out. Give us some <laughs> some promotion. 
I don't think it works anymore. Not it, not the way that it used to work, like back in 2000. I think, I think, I think we're taking a major step back where it's going to work just like it used to work before. And that, that leads to a few of the, uh, the additional questions that I have here. What is the platform that you test launch it on? We did Androids on purpose, and we went through specifically for Philippines and, and, and Indonesia. That's like where we are still acquiring maybe 80% of our users on purpose mm -hmm. for paid traffic. Because for us, the ability to be able to solve like the uh, performance of the game on low-end devices, right? That's going to be a major, major hook. And we have actually invested quite a bit of our engine and tech to make the game work on low-end devices as well. We are also we are also available on iOS on the on the, on the same geo betas, but we are not actively pursuing currently buying like users uh, because we haven't really optimized our monetization yet. I think we need a few more few few more before we really start pushing for acquiring for like you know hard you know high quality payers. But right now our focus has been on Android initially for testing for it for like giving the best potential experience to low end devices because for the type of game that we do. Latin America, Southeast Asia, Mexico, all those countries are going to matter quite a bit in terms of like the DAU and finding, having a, like a social experience. We cannot just ignore them. So we want to do our best before we go full in local, develop like what, did, what Free Fire did on the marketing side, building a team of hundreds to win in Brazil. That's what it takes. Yes. We don't have the resources yet, which we can talk about, but we still want to support those guys on day one, if possible, at global launch. And as soon as like, you know, growing profitable in the Western markets and we like don't lose our focus, then we will start to expand in other markets in, in terms of like expanding our like user base in a smart, like scalable way. That's like, like what we want to do. And then you said the first things that you wanted to do is test marketability. So you put in almost like a test build out there to yeah, really right. see the, the IPM, the CPI, yeah. but you don't really see any, any other metrics because you're not even testing for retention. So my question there was, why not use uh, a tool like, you know, there, there's, there's a bunch of different tools. I, I personally use Geek Lab where you can do that much earlier, where you can make app store assets already and test it on multiple different platforms with selected geos, with your ads, with your creatives, and then get your IPMs and actually get your, you know, store conversion numbers because you, you have created a store, even though the game doesn't exist. So. No, I think that's right. The one challenge there is that the, the, the install rate is a little bit challenging there because it's not like a true download experience. We use a tool called Esogira before actually the alpha. It's very similar. Like you build the landing page, yeah. people land on the fake page, you know, you get your initial reading. What you get out of that is IPM and CTR, but you don't get CTI. So we also cared about the CTI as well. Like if people go to like an app store page, they read the description, they look at the icon, they look at the screenshot, like these are real. Like, and do they actually click and download and the install button, you know? It's slightly different. I, from what I've seen, the CTIs tend to fluctuate and it's still like a very important step in terms of that commercial funnel. Yeah. So we really wanted to, to like mimic that whole experience, not only like the CTR and IPM, but also get a good reading on the CTIs. They, they do track that. I mean, there, there is like when you press on the install button in that, you know, faked out app store, it actually leads to usually it leads to a questionnaire. So, yeah. so that, that, I mean, you can set up your own questionnaire and ask them like, Hey, this game is actually coming soon. So what would you like to see? What, what got your attention and so forth? So there's the qualitative approach that comes in. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
we wanted to also obviously learn the you know the early day one day zero engagement or the okay day well that's a different time. thing that's a that's yeah that's a different for sure there's the day zero play session time how long people can do stay with because if you look at google play they will say the, there's a very strong correlation between like the day zero session time and the, your top grossing ranking you know mm-hmm. If you are above 20, 25 minutes, day zero session time in general, there's a very high chance that you could be golden. You could be actually pushing for top 50 grossing, right? So that's something that really also cared about and see if the core gameplay made a sense. Like people stick around that just to play a couple of matches or is this something they will just put aside? Uh, so that's- that was like why the alpha was also important. So because that, that that's that's exactly the, uh, the type of approach that I'm thinking as well is, is, you know, first test the marketability with whatever tool. So, so when you're putting it out in test launches and testing your early engagement, at least on that point, you have optimized somewhat your marketability, uh, most likely had influence from marketability to your art style, to your icon, to your app store. So when you're acquiring your first set of players, your CPIs are probably quite, quite, quite low. So you get that first nice metric in. And yeah. then you're going in for the engagement and you're starting to optimize that. And before that, of course, Playtest Cloud, all kinds of different tools, friends and family testing, all of that to, to make sure that you believe and you have early indication that the, the game is accessible, it's fun to play. Now let's see with real players, is it truly? And then at that point, you're starting to see technical issues because you know where the server is, how many players, how does this Exactly, game? all those things matter. Exactly. So there's like, you move, like the way I... I, I see you're approaching test launch or soft launch is the same way as I'm thinking, thinking it is just add more variable variables as you go forward, because there's immense amount of, of variables in, in a game and you're just slowly, not slowly, but quite rapidly, but still increasing the variables as, as, as the, as the development and, and the, the geos grow and platform. I, I agree. And our, I think in the last panel, I also mentioned this slide. I've been fascinated by the hyper casual studios where there's no separation between product and marketing. They just built like one level and they test it out. Like mm-hmm. if the metrics are not there, they don't even bother building the game. Or sometimes they build the game, you know, and they put it aside and they look for that perfect marketing asset to make the game work. Because for them, it's all about like the super, super low, like, you know, the CPIs, hopefully in like cents, like 20 cents, you know, 30 cents, whatever that number is. and arbitraging, showing them two more ads for what they paid for, right? Like that's like a very, like very day trading mentality. Like there's a huge arbitrage opportunity and that's how the hyper casual games work. But their rapid iteration between marketing and product and the, you know, the product marketers wearing the head of the designers and how rapidly they iterate. We have been fascinated by them. We talked a lot of them. So we, we figured like, we cannot do that as super evil megacorp. But what are the learnings? What are the, the things that we can apply to our approach and learn from them and be, get better at marketability and testing in general? So that was really like our like inspiration. I've heard Christian talk about that. He's been on this podcast as well. And I just, I feel like it's too far-fetched. Because <laughs> you're on the absolute different spectrum of gaming. Like the furthest away from hyper-casual is Super Evil Megacorp, in my opinion. Like, it, like if you put Rolex in one corner, you would have, you, you, you won't even see Super Evil Megacorp from that point. <laughs> like, it's just too far. So I think, I think like, I think in terms of marketability on a high level, I think you guys are looking at, uh, <laughs> like you could look at some other, other examples with, with great marketability, even on the Forex side, that would yeah. be uh, yeah. 
but because the, the thing is like with the marketability of the hyper casual games like they don't look at player trace they don't there's no segmentation they they just uh, they a bunch of goddamn ads and and then the smallest tiniest changes can influence the ipm like the color of the rocket and that makes the game viable like i think it's just too far-fetched compared to compared to what i consider in these type of games that that has to come in is like understanding of your player audience traits what they they find important in in certain segments whether it's altruism whether it's you know player journey like what motivates them and then tweaking your creatives to showing those different traits and then through that improving your marketability by really understanding the deepest emotions of your player base not like million ads and like what (laughs) what clicks i think the the, what the what i think we are getting better at is like just having this you know through the roof intellectual curiosity in terms of like what is what innovations are happening in the gaming space marketing space and really trying to understand the fundamentals there but going back to the previous point that you just raised we actually work with 12 trades around this time to get a both a good sense of like what do architects really care about what is their interesting motivations like you know and and you know uh, it used to be more hand wavy in the past but as we are thinking about the marketability as we are thinking about the product you know the product decisions that we need to make right what type of motivations do we actually really care about and survey about and actually are we satisfying with any of those features those needs right and we actually have been applying those principles from 12 traits that we have learned both for our competitors as well as like for our own psychographic of our own like players both the paid ones as well as like the alpha players they they are so different from each other you can tell by just looking at the psychographic or someone i can tell this is a vanguard player this is a mobile guy and this is some random Joe playing like action shooter for the very first time. Just, it's so different, right? So knowing that like we are trying to go from niche to mass, it is important to, important to recognize those differences. And again, cater the needs of both the niche uh, who is gonna amplify your message as well as like go after the masses who need that like handholding, who need that like, you know, that feel good slots machine moment, like with awesome rewards to progression ratios. You know, there are so many things that we learned from the 12 race data and we applied all the learnings into both our product and marketing like uh, roadmap. So that's probably something that you are happy to hear about. I'm, I'm very happy to hear about it. I'm a big fan of 12 traits and, and I think it, it helps a lot with that. Like that, that type of more analytical approach towards improving your marketability and improving your product is, is in my opinion, closer to what, companies like super evil should be doing rather than watching you know what voodoo does <laughs> <laughs> there is something special in that don't ignore that I'm not, I'm not i'm not hating on voodoo in any <laughs> sense i just feel like it's uh like i feel like what they do is a business model rather than a game genre it's day trading that's what it is it's exactly. like literally it's like stock yeah. stock market that's basically what it is you know you could either do hyper casual games if you have the skill set to build games on unity yeah. or you know you can go after the you know the you know stock market and you know or maybe cryptocurrency and make the bets day in day out see what happens it's, it's very interesting so i wanted to ask you about one thing that you mentioned or actually two things so geo is a segmenting based on source now you said you said like 10 percent us 20 percent 25 25 and then 20 Anyway, I forgot the ratios, but how did you get the ratios of, of the of the geos? I think it's the art and science, looking at our competitors and looking at our vainglory data 
I think it's going to be a combination of uh, those two. It's impossible to know because like, obviously we are not building a game just for Bangalore fans. I mean, we still love them. We believe they are going to be, as the 12th race data showed us, there is a, a subgroup of Bangalore players who will really, truly enjoy this game. But, you know, we cannot make everyone happy. So we take that into account. I think like our, our, our estimated distribution is like a combination. And there's a bit of like where that art comes in. To your point, what is your closest competitor? I will say Brawl Stars, right? I mean, and, and then who are your like next layer of competitors? Who are your adjacent audiences? Like then we are looking into like PUBGs and Fortnite, et cetera. So we look at the distribution of those games, like and the geo distribution, both from the revenue and monetization potential and the downloads perspective. So that's how, how kind of like we came up with the, the representation of like the geos that we want to go after. The top grossing, if you don't have access to the sensor tower data, you can just look at the top grossing charts in the countries that you think you're going to be successful. You look at in Southeast Asia, you know, top 10, top seven out of top 10 is, is basically like action shooter. So you know that if you can break through in that country, you know, let's say this is Indonesia, you know, this could be potentially one of your like go-to markets. If you are building like a RPG zombie game and you don't see anything in top 100 grossing, it's either super scary or it's like a blue spot, like opportunity, you know, you know, the, the chances that, you know, there's an unexplored opportunity is relatively slim. But if you don't have access to any type of like data, I will actually uh, minimum look at the top three and top grossing games mm -hmm. over time in different geographies and use that as a starting point. But if you have sensor tower wrapping, obviously use that to get like a better estimate. Yeah, or just if you don't have sensor tower, just get sensor tower. <laughs> I mean, sure, if it was a discount, we still want to get them, but we haven't we haven't gotten them. But yeah, give a, a discount code. But, but all right, let, let's take that offline. <laughs> so, and the, the second one, which which you mentioned, was very interesting: segmenting based on source. I think that makes all the sense in 2020 and and before. But how are you going to do that in 2021 with the uh, IDFA being deprecated? Like you can't really segment based on whether the player is coming out of Facebook or whether it's an organic. How are you going to do that? Yeah, I think it's going to be a challenge. I think there's going to be still subset of players who are going to still opt into ATN, ATNT, as you as you like mentioned, right? The, the post IDFA world, there's still going to be a subset of players who will say, okay, I'm okay to sharing my data. The second thing is, I think the shift is going to happen from the pre-install to post-install and like looking for that early signal, allowing you to differentiate between different types of players. So for instance, like one signal for us is how fast people can actually complete a tutorial. That already gives us the, like a rough sense of like how skillful they are. Are they going to be able to do basic things like running and shooting and like transforming into this like primal? And you guys should check that out. We have a, a super cool a uh, moment where in this catalyst black, you know, there you have this your human form and then there's your primal form. So you are becoming this like magical monster, which is like 10x powerful than everyone around you. So you can make massive damage, you know? And so the, what we do is like in tutorial, we like build tutorial in a very like, both trying to teach the game, but also trying to understand and see, you know, segment people into different buckets, like based on the, how fast and how skillful they are during the tutorial. And ideally speaking, once you understand like how, you know, once you understand the type of player that you're potentially getting, then sort of the uh, best, you know, best next experience that you can think of. And based on that, you're going to have more learnings. This is your second signal. And, you know, for the next match, maybe you want to do something else. So you can build this player profile on the go as they play the game, even if you don't have access to 
idea thing. But obviously, you need to have a type of game where segmentation actually does matter, right? For us, it does matter. It's a multiplayer PvP game. Skill is important. Having a high kill death ratio is important. Mm-hmm. You know, not being run over is important. There's like many, many important things that people, you know, we, we don't want our new players to be overwhelmed. So to categorize them as early as possible, we are collecting all those signals and using adaptive technology in the background to adjust the game for them so that they actually have a good time. They don't get bashed all over again all the time. Uh, yeah. So that would be my answer. I'm happy to hear that because, yeah, even though segmentation based on source on iOS is pretty much impossible, segmentation is extremely important on iOS. And you're basically retooling or readjusting your tool so that the segmentation happens during the first session, during the first day. And through that, you're able to segment players to different type of cohorts and, and segments based on, you know, not only their skill set, but also maybe their purchase behavior. And, and you don't have to do it like super complicated. Ideally, we want to build like an infrastructure, machine learning, doing this all automated on the fly, you know. Uh, it's not going to happen in 2021. I can no. tell you that. Yeah. Uh, but event, you can start with like a simple heuristic like filter or rule set and try to figure out like, you know, what does the player journey look like? And at what point does it make sense to interfere with that journey so that I could adjust their experiences? I think that starting with a heuristic you know, rule set and making segmentation based on that as a first pass, and then building, if you actually pays off, then building the full automation, scalability, you know, machine learning, AI, whatever you want to do in the background, I think that's probably the way to go. Let's start with very simple basics, you know, and then, then build it as you need. Because exactly. those type of models will only work at scale. You need data to make that model work. Yes. Yeah. And and exactly. So so starting off with with even just segmenting players based on their skill level, and then optimizing not optimizing, but putting them on a path that it is either a little bit harder, a little bit easier. And you know, how many bot battles, for example, are there? If you're a total noob, then you're probably playing a lot of bot battles. Yeah, if you are right. pretty hardcore, you hate bot battles. Maybe, you know, after a one, you're like, I got this. Let's go, let's go, let's go. And that puts you quicker to the path of, of you know, playing against others. Yeah. On the monetization side, there are also smarter things that you can do. And, you know, in terms of like smartly segmenting and not really segmenting, right? So if you look at like how, let's say, AFK Arena discriminates between different types of spenders and players, right? So again, they do not spend people to drop hundreds of uh, dollars uh, easily in a day if they really want to like collect all the heroes right away, right? There's no stuff. But what they do is like, they actually set a very high gameplay time to dollar exchange rate. Like you cannot actually run through AFK by just spending lots of lots of money, right? So smart players who are small spenders who want to spend $1, $2 daily, you know, there are tons of like price discriminative offers where you are basically exchanging your time to play the game and engagement to get really good discounts and offers, right? So they make sure that you come back and you get those $1, $2 offers, you know, and for also, you know, they also like smart step people up to $5 and $10 and $20 really pushing their boundaries. But there's no real like sophistication in terms of like, it's not like a machine learning or AI driven system. You know, they have some basic segmentation from what I can tell, but like the, the way they price discriminate, the way they discriminate the content, you know, and having a strong like time exchange value rate makes people player feel like, you know, I can come back and I can spend a few, I can spend a lot, but I will still enjoy the game. So there are smart decisions like that you can do in your monetization design. 
The other thing they, I think they, I likely like about AFK is like how they like use the pop-up offers rather than just bombarding you. Like at every login, there's a pop-up offer, you know, like it's not like the machines on this, like you don't get 10 pop-ups, you know, from the, from the uh, Mothermore or Kingdom Age. So what they do is like they attach like milestone or triggers, right? As you progress in the game, at your, at your own pace, whatever that is, you hit essential level five, here is like, a, you know, a pop-up offer relevant to your journey. So like whatever pace you are going at, you know, here is an offer that is relevant to your journey. I know as a game developer, as a game designer, I know where you are. Here are the needs for you. You know, if you are tempted, go for this offer. If you don't tempted, that's okay. You know, then I will be more along the, along the ride. So those scripted offers, offering people relevant material during their journey, I think is one really smart way, even if you don't have the segmentation capabilities and also price discriminating and giving different flavors of like what people can do and buy in the shop and the monetization. There are a bunch of things before you jump into like machine learning, in my opinion. And I'm coming from a company, right? Like machines, almost everything was like AI, machine learning, live ops from one to hundred and from hundred back to one, you know, nothing wrong with all those, all those like decisions, you know, but just be smart, be uh, nimble, be like, you know, be, be, be like careful about what you build. Like don't build something that you are going to build, use in like 10 years. Like that's like my take on the teacher prioritization and how much data science machine learning you want to use as you are building your core product. Exactly. I'm listening to you. This doesn't sound at all like super evil megacorp talk. Like you're very, <laughs> you're, you're very in tune to free to play. So. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, again, going back to what I said earlier, you know, but if I can bring what I know to the super evil working with our amazing CTO, Tommy, amazing CPO, Q, you know, again, amazing, like Chris, like if we can combine what we know together, we can, I really truly believe we can build the next generation of engineers. Yeah. And that's a, that's a compliment for, for sure. So I wanted to like last, last sort of a con like point that I wanted to go through is content. So we talked about that a little bit. And we know that content cadence is the king. So how do you prepare for, for Catalyst Black? Like talk about the, you know, talk about your content treadmill in the sense, like how do you prepare for that? And, and how does it work? Because for a long time, you've had now a very distributed organization, even before COVID. So That's how, right. how has that, you know, how has that worked, worked out? I think, let me talk about the content cadence a little bit first. Because the game is not live, I cannot reveal all the amazing things yeah. that we want to do after the launch. You know, as you know, what I can say without pissing our head of design, Patrick, is that we built the game in a very modular way. It's a PvPE game. So we can easily lean into more PvE. We can easily lean more into PvP. We can do massive guild wars. Again, I cannot go too yeah, much into yeah. this while we are cooking in the kitchen before they are ready. But we really want to build the game the, it, you know, that you can play in many, many ways, ranging from cooperative PvE to competitive PvP, right? As we are adding all these like, different types of gameplay, we are playing tons of events, primals, loadout items, and other new content for launch and beyond. And one thing that we were really smart about, I'm hoping it will pay off, is rather than spending three, four, five months, maybe five months is an exaggeration, but two months to develop like a hero from the get-go, like a 3D model. Building a 3D model is very, very expensive. And, and, and you know, designing a new hero that, get, that can run and shoot and have unique abilities and make sure that hero fits into the rest of the, like, the game design and balance, like that's a very tough problem. And Bangalore actually suffered quite a bit about like the content, you know, cadence of building new heroes. Like 
it was taking a huge team to get it out and it was very expensive. And in some cases, we were not even getting back the money of what we spent to get the heroes out, right? So in this game, there are hero-like primals and they are more limited in the amount, like how many of those are a little bit like more limited. Right now, we are still in single digits and hopefully by launch, we will go uh, to a higher number. But the core gameplay is around loadout and producing like a weapon and the archetypes of weapon is massively much, much, much cheaper than compared to like a primal. So like that's actually like a massive learning, thinking about like how fast can we produce the core content for this game? This is a shooter game. You know, the start of the show is still going to be the weapons. It's going to be 80% of your time. You're going to be spending your weapons, abilities, trinkets, and all those things, right? So that's like where we feel really comfortable about like creating like new content is super, super fast. As well as like the offer side of things, like we build it from the ground up so that we can do over the air quick updates. And again, learned quite a bit from some of our competitors, like what would it take to create dynamic offers on the fly, you know, as quickly as possible and replace new things. So like both from the shop perspective, from the loadout perspective, from the weapon perspective, from the, the even the maps perspective, we made massive investments into our authorability tool set. For Bangalore, it took six months to do like a five versus five map. If I'm not mistaken, I wasn't there. Now, probably if we do a similar map, obviously it will be a little bit like lower quality or like it will make like some of the details, but the core will be there. Probably making the same map will take less than six weeks, I will say. Maybe uh, there's almost like a one to five, maybe somewhere one to five to one to 10 reduction in terms of like how fast we can produce new content from maps to environments, like to, to loadouts, to characters. So there's a massive, massive learning from the Vainglory days that the team took into account as we were building the core game. Hope that answers your question on the, on the content side of things. Yeah, yeah, makes makes sense, makes sense. And so focusing more from heroes to weapons that are easier to produce, and then from and then adding a more depth to different gears and weapons through different modding system and so forth. It's a it's a hard bet. I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, given the amount of innovation that's happening on the monetization side, on the gameplay side, you know, we don't know how well it's going to play from the monetization perspective, giving up like the heroes, which you can feel and touch. And like, you know, there's something more character like building and the lore and all those things like, you know, giving up heroes is obviously a massive no-no for core RPGs, right? There are titles out there who pull this off like Counter-Strike, like Warframe, like uh, Destiny, right? Like weapons are the show of the game, but those are really weapon-centric games. Like when you look at the game, it's a first-person shooter one uh, fifth of the screen is your weapon. Like that's what you hold, that's what you use, that's what you shoot, that's what you mm. walk around, right? So for our isometric shooter, we need to uh, we needed to massively invest how fancy those weapons look, both in the game, in the shop, in the loadout, as well as like, you know, all the PFX animations and all those things in the actual match, right? So it's a little different take than the traditional free to uh, first person shooter. So we still need to see how well the players will receive that change going from heroes to loadouts. We still have the heroes elements and we potentially can make some fundamental changes to really have like unique heroes. But you know, it's it's a it's it's a it's a, it's a big bet. Like we, we need to we need to see how it's gonna play out. Yeah, yeah. Another part that players tend to be very interested in are different game modes because they they a lot they add a lot of variety to the gameplay. They a lot of add a lot of variety in your builds, how you're playing them. So investing into into your ability to create different game modes is essentially ability to change the rules of the game is quite important as it keeps the game varied. Exactly. 
authority is super important. And with Vainglory, like I think we had like maybe three, four game modes. With this game, we already have five live game modes, a few more in the production. It's actually like we move very, very fast. Design team pushes everyone hard. Guys, I'm ready. Let's go. Let's try. Let's test. You know, like that speed of execution is mind blowing with the new set of tools that the engine team built. So big, big kudos to Tommy and the engine team for helping us to move much faster than, than in the past. So everything seems to be there. I mean, well, they have you as a chief revenue officer. They got a solid team who built a big game from, from the before. I mean, 50 million installs is not to joke at, especially for a very, very hardcore game. You got your own engine. You got your, your big team, a lot of people. So what's next for, for Super Evil? Like when can we expect Catalyst Black to, to come out and when we can see this to materialize? And, and of course, the self-serving part. Who do you need? What are your open positions? Yeah. So fingers crossed, we really want to go out this year. Not everything is perfect. I think I, I'm proud to say our day one retention is in going, I think it's getting very close to like a world-class range. I'm really, really happy with what I'm seeing. And this is on paid Facebook. So I'm really, really happy for those who are interested and wondering about like the metrics and stuff. Like I'm really, really happy with the, how delightful the early player experiences from story of the York first couple of matches. It's super, super fun. And what we have still working on is the midterm and long-term retention. We want to hit certain numbers and we are not there yet. And the, the reason is that we actually haven't built the features that we said we will build like some time ago. It's just taking time, you know, and it's like a scalability issue as a team. Like we have big ambitions and we need to build those features. We exactly know from 12 trace data what we need to build. And, you know, we haven't, lucky for us, we haven't missed any shots this year in terms of like what features to build next but we haven't landed them. So we need to land those big features that we need to land and see the metrics. And then we will do the green light decision. Like, hey, are we good to go? We are still missing some features around the social side. That's like a big ask from our community as the players. Uh, we are missing some competitive features that we need to add. And, and we, we need to build more content before we go live. So if everything comes together, I think we can launch hopefully sometime this year. But I think the latest will be like early next year if everything goes according to plan. That's like my, my, my best guess. What keeps me up at night? Two key hires. First, as I was telling you, the, how closely I'm working with like Q on the live up side, you know, and the monetization side of things. We are in dire need of like to hand uh, over the, the lead product manager role who will oversee like live ops. Because right now, I think like both Q and I are underserving the company, Q is our CPU again, for those who are listening now, you know, uh, the, the combination of two of us, I feel like it's a great synergy and we have done a tremendous amount of work together, but like, it's not like a, it's a full-time job, like to be able to think about the content, live ops, like what do I sell, how frequently, what would it take, what's the price, you know, going, talking to live ops analysts, talking to data analysts, data scientists, like it's a full-time job and both of us don't have time and energy to do it like, you know, properly. As we are getting closer to global launch, I will, I think we need to strengthen our benchmark on the product side and get that like world-class lead product manager hire. If, if you're out there, you know, listening to me, if you have the quantitative skill set, the chops to do the data analysis, understand the player needs, as well as like writing specs and, you know, ready to build the next generation of entertainment, talk to me, talk to Q, uh, we will, yeah, we'll have a place for you at, 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 at Super Evil. The second role that keeps me at night is going back to our four pillars, right? 
we said that we want to be the cross-platform which attempted at Vainglory and you know we learned quite a bit but if you are serious about that pillar our product marketing needs to be world-class like we don't have uh, the muscle in the company right now to really go after that more traditional marketing on PC and console and Nintendo Switch and all those things and we, we, we really want to build that muscle to be able to other platforms like audiences on the marketing side. And we need, to, you know, that's, that's like a senior hire that I'm looking to do. I don't know about the level, but I know what we are lacking, right? Uh, so that's like the, the two roles that keeps me up at night. Everything else, I feel like we covered on, on the marketing side and, and the, on the product side, pretty much. Awesome. So if you are a lead level product manager or experienced product marketing manager with, with especially experience of, of what mixed media model or yeah i mean i do believe we haven't talked about it but to your point in the post idea world it's going to be a madman meeting performance marketing right yeah. that's what it's going to be product marketing is going to be so freaking important and i i will imagine that if it's going to be right now, it's like 80, 90% performance marketing, 10 to 20% other stuff, right? The traditional marketing. And in the future, the companies will have competitive advantage. And I think Nibo said it really nice a few episodes back. You know, you need to, as a new generation of marketer, you need to be really good at creatives potentially. That could be one venue. You could be really good quant, you know, that's another venue. You could be eventually have a solid understanding of the product, what the product is, and get your hands really dirty with product to be able to intelligently talk to like the players and find ways to reach out to those audiences and players through multiple platforms, multiple social media solutions, influencers, and all those things are going to be very, very important, like building community, you know. So the next generation of marketer, I imagine for us, needs to do all those but also needs to ideally have some PC experience because that's a completely different beast. And I think we can learn much faster if we have a solid world-class leader overseeing the product marketing function in general. So those are my top two hires. Perfect. Welcome. I hope you get those hires quickly. And I'm really, I'm actually really looking forward to playing Catalyst Black. Still haven't got my APK or my test flight built. So, so uh, I'm very, very much looking, looking forward to that. I've seen the game game on, on, of course, on, on YouTube. Looks interesting. Looks beautiful. Like, you know, like the previous super evil, evil game. And I'm, I'm happy to hear that what, in my opinion, are, are very smart investment in how Super Evil makes games and how, how they operate games. So I hope, I hope the company breaks with, with Catalyst Black. There are many interesting things are happening there. I cannot, um, unfortunately, talk publicly about them, but that transition is important. Being like a global workforce and being a global home for the best talent is really what we want to do. Like, how do we become the next Zynga in the next, in, the, in this new culture, it's going to be about, all be about like building like culture, right? Like, Entertainment, like gamers are going to be like the next cultural like phenomena. That's why Anderson Horowitz bet on us because they believe that, you know, if somebody's going to challenge Netflix, that's going to be us. That's going to be like the gamers, right? So we want to be part of that culture. We want to be part of that community. And we are really looking forward to building that uh, best home for talent across the world. So if you are somewhere, you know, you are not in US, maybe you're in Europe, Portugal, you know, maybe in Russia, Norway, you know, wherever you are, talk to us. Just to give you like a rough example, I, I you know, my, you know, my, my mouth is where my, my, my feet is. Like the, my team right now is distributed in across three continents. Like we have people in Hawaii, one person in Hawaii, two in Bay Area, one in LA, one in Kentucky, 
three people in Norway, one in France, two in Turkey, two in Indonesia. And I didn't answer your question on the distributed org. Like there are challenges that comes with it. You know, the asynchronous work becomes important. Like, the, you know, you need to be mindful of time zone. You need to over communicate. Presence is super important. Like how do you build presence? Like, you know, when you're in an office, you tap, tap, tap back some, someone and you're like, hey, can we chat about this? Like, and you, you are missing that watercolor moment when you do like remote. Being on Zoom all day long is very, very tiring. Like what, how do you overcome all those challenges, right? So we, we, we actively care about all those like problem set as we are building the company. And I would recommend for anyone who hasn't heard or seen that, there's a remote first handbook that our CEO like shared a couple of months back. You can find it on our website and other, other kind of like websites. Check that out. Like we literally talked about this, how do we work remotely every freaking week till we like get tired and there's not much else new to say. And we still go back every month and visit and see and you know talk about how we work, how we can get better, how we can become like a global talent house, right? I would recommend anyone to check out that remote first handbook. It's a really, really like iterative process handbook that I came through. And I'm looking forward to meet my next rock stars. All right. I'll put in links into the description of this towards the roles if they are on your webpage. And then I'll, I'll put in a link also to your LinkedIn and, and to the, uh, the handbook because I've read the handbook and I think the, uh, the first one came in pre-COVID and everybody started reading it as soon as everybody became remote. Yeah. I think it's incredibly challenging. I hate remote work largely. Oh, you do? <laughs> I, I, I hate it. It's, uh, it's very efficient, but if that's the only way to move forward, I, I, would, I, I, I just hate it. I, I like doing a couple of remote days because it allows me to focus a lot of, yeah. us to have these type of conversations. But mostly I love being at the studio. I love seeing other people. I love talking. And especially in, in, in my type of role, you have to be talking to people and, and putting them on a Zoom call. It's weird if, if, if I'm, you know, it's just, it's not the same. It's not, you know, the, the one-on-one that, that you need to be having. But that's a different story and that's a different podcast. But that's a podcast that, Vulcan, I'm, I'm happy to have you anytime. You, this, this was fantastic. I've learned a ton. You're a very smart person. So I, I very much like talking to you. And we started talking, by the way, we started talking about Turks. <laughs> I haven't mentioned Turks yeah. at all. I'll give you my personal experience from Turkish mafia, man. They're everywhere. Turkish people working in games. I have still yet to meet a Turkish person who is not extremely hardworking and very qualified to do his or her job. I've I, I don't know too many Turkish people, but I would say <laughs> I can count them with, with my two hands. And everybody has been absolutely amazing. And you, you fit the category really well. So I don't know what they do in Turkey, but it it's seems the, like it's they're the, cracking the, the, uh, the gaming it's, part. It's, it's, the, it's the survival mechanics and how, uh, obviously, we don't want to talk too much about politics. But like, you know, when you have to go through elimination rounds of elimination, right? When you grow up and, you know, to get into the best college, to get into the best university, to get into like the best program, you know? There's always like exams that you need to excel at. Like, you know, when you come through such a competitive like mindset academically, you know, I think it instills some values for the people who actually are top of that food chain, who also had a chance to go to Europe, who had a chance to go to, to you know, US, to other parts of the world. Like, because they are coming through like hard work, they value, you know, and they understand what it takes to be kind of like a successful at what you do. You know, that's like my take on it. It's not much smartness. It's about like recognizing like 
you know, you need to be both smart and hardworking if you want to make a difference. You cannot have both. Like, you know, there's you cannot have one and expect just to miraculously like things are just going to work out for you, you know? There's a, there's a word for it. It's called immigrant mentality. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a very nice way to, to summarize it. Um, I, I, I'm actually, this is a funny story. I know we probably ran out of time. Uh, there's no time. This is a podcast. That's the funny thing. Yeah. <laughs> A funny story is like, you know, I was so proud of myself during my very early childhood. Like I was all, I was the one who was getting away with not working uh, for a really long time, <laughs> even during the college years, you know, I just had like a very like a strong short-term memory. You know, if I have to study for an exam, I'll just study like eight hours before the exam and I'll just do okay, you know. But when I went to the grad school the very first time, my grades were so terrible. I was like, what the hell is happening? This is not me. Like, you know, I was losing my head. And that's really the first time. Actually, I figured out in the US, like, you know, it took me 22 years to realize you need to be both smart and hardworking because now you are competing against the best of the best, you know? Yeah. And that that's like what opened my uh, mind up. It's a funny story. So <laughs> don't be the guy who gets a D in, 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 in grad school. People like look at you like a, like a like a you know alien. Like who is this guy? How did he even get here? You know, don't be that guy. <laughs> yeah, especially with a Star Trek name like like <laughs> <laughs> like yeah, that, like more. <laughs> that that that's right. Yeah, about smart being smart, being hardworking is important, in my opinion. And the other thing that I like is like you know I don't know if I'm that person, but in work life, one thing that I figured is like having a high empathy to, towards other people, showing that you care is so important, right? Whether you are doing your job as a manager, whether you are doing your job as an individual contributor, you know, your colleagues, your comrades, like they need to know that you are there for them and you are like really caring about them, the team, the company, and you listen and you listen again and you listen again. And it's like, you know, such an important skill set. I think that that again, maybe Turks are a little bit better trained on the listening, you know, and showing high empathy on on that stuff. Like you know, because like the as you know, the Asian cultures have this like very weird social structure where everybody knows everything about everyone. It's so <laughs> weird, right? So you like grow up with that awareness. Like, how do I? communicate how do I make sure I don't hurt that people but I still want to gossip about him you know like all that like a mental model could be advantages to some of the terms I'm not saying like that's helping me but that's something that I've observed and it may be true or not true that's that's actually now that you mentioned it I see it now I, I think about you know my my Turkish colleagues and and you're right they are very personal in in many sense like because there are other other nations where the competition is as tough if not even tougher than it is in turkey to get to those yeah. top positions and the people coming from those areas are distant often they all they are very goal driven to a point yeah. where they are not looking to the left or to the right or behind them they're just looking forward yeah and the last point that i want to raise is the the lack of resources again having high competition, right? Even for food. Like if you are growing up in a family, you are one of the, and that's not me, but in general, if you are competing against that like last, like last dessert, mm -hmm. you know, for dinner and you have maybe five brothers, uh, right? You know, it's, it's, it's just like a different mentality where you are in, in, in super hyper competitive lack of resource like environment. And, you know, those people tend to get, from my opinion, to 
time to get like more creative to 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 come up with like solutions like you know you, i don't want to call it street smart but there is this academic rigor and in workplace i figure like you actually want to combine the academic rigor with like the street smart somehow like having a strong business sense and intuition about like the problems that you are facing with you know i think that's very very important and and it's not something that you are born with but you learn how to do it and in my opinion whether you learn it when you are five years old fighting for that last ice cream, or maybe you are in your twenties, but you still need to get things done somehow working with other people. You know, those skill sets are very important. Again, maybe the Asian folks uh, or the Turkish or the you know the Middle Eastern folks are just more used to that type of like social pressure, and they let, do, let me put it this way: Here's welcome what you're trying to say. There's no participation trophies in Turkey. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right. That sounds That's about right. right. <laughs> that sounds about right. We are not as hardcore as like the, you know, the East Asian culture, you know. We don't get beaten up if we don't deliver the scores or, or yeah. we are not constant source of disappointment if our, you know, the grades are not good enough. I, I know a few friends have suffered like for PTSD, like where they were trying to be the best at piano when they are 12 years old, you know, like in, 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 in you know, coming from the East Asian cultures. Yeah. Turkish folks didn't have to go through that, but you know, it's we are just like- well, I've, I've had yeah. people in my studios who are from Korea, like not American Korean, I'm talking Korean Korean. Yeah, yeah, oh, that's <laughs> like really cool. So say straight from, from, from Nexon and other companies. And then I've had, of course, Turks and then Finns. And there's a, it's like, it's like different levels. Like you see the Korean who comes into Turkey and he's like, oh, this is easy work. And you see a, a, a Turkish person come into Finland is like, wow, this is like a leisure city. <laughs> and yeah. the, the Korean person who comes from Finland is like, what is going on here? Do people even work? I love this place. So, so there's, there's, there's levels to it. And, and it's not always like the more hours is better. It's just, there's a, there's a balance in between. Let's put it this way. Yeah, and I think most people learn it through their career. You know, I was very academically rigorous in my youth, but I figured in the workplace environment, that's not really the best way to operate like very quickly, right? No. The first year out of college, uh, first sorry, first year out of grad school at my first job, I was trying to be so like, you know, correct, rigorous with my work. I was always late and like, you know, if it's not like meeting the, the actual goal of the business, like, which is about like, you know, in, in, in management calls, I think what you do is like, you basically talk to all these companies, you learn what they know, where they suffer. And you basically tell that same story back to them. Right. And that level of business rigor is uh, like the, the academic rigor or statistical rigor is not something they really care about. Like yeah. they want to hear what they want to hear. So like all the work that you do may not matter. And it's true that, you know, there's a balance between speed and rigor and, I do believe in decision-making and this is something that I learned at Machine Zone. You know, we were, we were working super, super fast. I'm always going to be grateful to my ex-boss Deepak for teaching me many skillful, like, you know, approaches to how to work. And, you know, I, when I'm making like decisions, I realize like if we have hundred decisions to make every day, eight of them are garbage. Like it doesn't matter whether you make the decision one way or another. So I think the trick is to identify which decisions are going to matter less and make them quickly and swiftly just move on but also recognizing which ones do matter and spend more time and rigor thinking about it. Like thinking about the constant process of making the decision. And like, I should ask myself, what is the upside of going forward with this decision mm -hmm. versus not making any decision at all, right? And that's, I think like a skill that you just learn or you meet someone that is amazing at that skill set, and you're like, wow, I need to learn this. And you like, 
you know, absorb that skill set over time. Uh, for for you as a CEO, I think that's also very critical, right? Like, what do you do every day? Like, I would say as a as a as a as a lead, I think the most important part is setting up a context so that people can make decisions as yeah. they know the context for the decision making, and the context allows them to invest proper amount of time to that decision if they know how important it is in the grand scheme of things. If they're yeah. missing the context, then they don't know what to invest on and, and what to what to you know what to do basically. That's, yeah, no, that's that's also true. I think the context is important, but also like uh, recognizing what what's what are the Amazon as Amazon calls like type one and type two decisions. You know, yeah. reversible ones and irreversible ones, and trying to categorize your decisions, whether at work or at home, as quickly as into those two buckets, and just try to, to try to get them done. You know, uh, spend your stuff, spend your time on 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 what really matters to you. You know. Yeah. Uh, that's, I think, very, very critical skill for anyone to, to gain and learn. Uh, anyhow, I don't know how oh, we ended up talking good. about works, but yeah. All right, welcome. We almost cracked two hours, so it's 8.30 a.m. here. And it's wow. All right. You're going to go. Very late here. Well, I need to start my, my work day, <laughs> but I truly appreciate this. This was amazing. You'll be back. On, on various various things. I think we have lots, me, of, lots of things to talk about. <laughs> remind me to talk less next time, all right? No, like, all I right. will not. This podcast <laughs> is literally about people talking. So, so this is perfect. <laughs> all right. Thanks, thanks so much for having talk me. To you later. All my best to, to the fine folks at, at Super Evil. Wishing, wishing the best, and I, I think it's going to be a good game. Thank you so much. We are looking forward to launching the game again, hopefully sometime this year. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.